0: Done. There is another suggestion. Uh, Book of Mormon uh, uh, researchers out of... Um, that are studying in Mesoamerica, and, and I tend to agree with this one also, recognize the fact that the uh, Mayan calendar, if the Book of Mormon did take place in surrounded by Mayan influence, that the Mayan calendar, uh, every 52 years there is a complete cycle that would come back around. Okay? And, and and so if anybody ever been to uh, Costa Maya, okay, uh, there's a there's a great little set of ruins outside Costa Maya called uh, Chachoban. and it, when you go there, what, what they would do at, at the 52 year cycle, you would take a temple that was actually covered in bright red, and you would rebuild a new temple over the top of it. And then in the next 52-year cycle, you build another one right over the top of it. One of the reasons that Chachoban is kind of fun is that there is an exposed part, and you can see the layers. You see the bright red rock underneath. You see a set of sedimentary rock, and then the next wall coming up that they had rebuilt on the 52-year calendar. It, and it fit the Jubilee year of the Law of Moses. That it, we get this renewal period of time. Okay, so there's a sense that this is probably the coming of the 52 year cycle, the jubilee year that they're all also there. Okay, so let me get you, give you one more, and and this is I don't have hard data on it. Just say here's an interesting parallel, uh, and I'm not, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because I want to hit more application today than just kind of historical information because I do think if my, if if my if we walk out of institute and you have historical knowledge and you don't have application stuff that you can't plug into your life tonight, then I failed at my task. Because that was never the intent of the Book of Mormon for it to be a nice historical document for us to study. It's to apply it so that our lives are changed as a result of the doctrines. That's, so, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, so I'm not going to go through line by line, but let me just show you what I found. Somehow, in my researching, what I came across, I ended up looking at the uh, dedicatory prayer of King Solomon at the dedication of uh, Solomon's temple. And and that's always a one... And and by the way, if you don't know, that dedicatory prayer in 1 Kings 8 was the uh, template that Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery used In the dedicatory prayer found in section 109 of the Doctrine and Covenants of the Kirtland Temple. And the subsequent template that has been used in every dedicatory prayer of every modern day temple. It's 1 Kings 8. It is King Solomon standing in front of his people with the temple behind. It says with hands raised. And and giving this... This magnificent dress and address and praying for every part of the temple and the people that come through it and the effect it will have on them. Okay. So amazingly enough, I started reading through King Solomon's dedicatory address, and I, and I thought, I'm reading Benjamin's address. And I started seeing all the parallels between the dedication of Solomon's temple and King Benjamin's address. And, and what I've got in the different colors are just some of the parallels I found between the two discourses, which made me wonder this, and just something to put in back in your head, especially for next week when we start talking about covenant making and the covenant making that was extended, the promises that were made back, and the the under which the the those covenants that they were then charged to go forward and live. Okay, we're going to get this. Call and answer exchange going back and forth between King Benjamin and the people. Do you want this? Yes. Do this? Okay, we will. Uh, and, and you just get this back and forth. That's next week. That's uh, verses, chapters 4 and 5. But I just found it's fascinating to me that there were this many parallels. So here, here's a suggestion that I have. There's one other possibility for King Benjamin's address on top of everything else that we've talked about. Mosiah is going to move to to Zarahemla. He's going to bring the people together. He's going to hand off this to King Benjamin. Um, And Chris, I liked your idea a lot. You know, the possibility that perhaps as Mosiah is rolling into town and it it was a kingly tradition sometimes if you want to take two disparate people and bring them together, what do you do? You you take a wife of the other group. You marry them together. So, so wouldn't it be interesting if we found out that one day that King Benjamin was the son of, you know, uh, a Lehite and a Zarahemlite? So somehow we get this interesting. Don't know. Could be. But, but so here they are. And, but they're having the Lamanites find out who they, where they are. The Lamanites pour down into Zarahemla. They're having to keep fighting. They're fighting internal battles. And it says that they finally, finally, finally have peace. If you are a Law of Moses type people and you've been spending all of your time just trying to survive and having to fight with the sword and battle and now you have peace, what is the first thing that you might want to build in Zarahemla? A temple. So that doesn't that, that makes it interesting to me that perhaps they were so busy and just trying to survive that now after a relative period of peace and maybe coming up on the jubilee year that maybe this was their chance to finally either build a build a temple or rebuild a temple and in some case and and if, and if you have a new king who's now coming up that makes perfect sense to me that opens up the possibility that this was also a temple dedication or at least a temple, rededication. Or recommitting to a temple because you just get this temple theology that really starts to be steeped. And and it weaves its way through all of King Benjamin's address. Does that make sense? Is that too far a reach? (laughs) Okay. I just thought that was kind of fascinating. All right. So that said... (laughs) <laughs> like that. Um, now, as King Benjamin is going to start, one of the things that he's going to want, he's going to do is he's going to give us. Uh, a, he's going to say to the people, literally, "I'm about to give you mysteries." And when we talk about mysteries of the gospel, mysteries of the kingdom, what are those? Are we supposed to avoid the mysteries? What is a mystery? New information from God. It's new information from God. Unbe- new, new to unrevealed truth. Unrevealed truth Sorry. to us. us. But that it's not mysteries, and that we can't know it. It's just mysteries that it's not generally known, but that He wants us to know. Those are mysteries. So what King Benjamin is going to say early on here? Stay tuned. I'm about to get. You're about to receive mysteries. There is a theophany. Uh, 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 a revelation that you're about to get. Okay? Now, just the word, the mysteries, is one of the things that led me to join the church. I grew up in a basic Christian church, and I had a lot of questions about a lot of things early on. Sure. And most of the things that I would ask the preacher and the teenager he would say, don't worry about that. Yes. That's one of the mysteries of the kingdom. So that, that isn't for you to worry about. Right. But God had made no sense to me. And that was my big thing. And it was the usual. Basically, that's how it is. Yeah. So you don't need to worry. And we don't have the answers for it. We yeah. <laughs> And isn't it nice that the Lord says, I want you to know the mysteries. Okay, yes. But sometimes those mysteries, why would he keep a mystery back though, by the way? Why wouldn't he just tell us? Why, why would there even be a revealed knowledge that hasn't been revealed yet? A wants us to search, because if we search, then we're going to own and and dig and and embrace what we find, what we dig. Why else? Are you ready for it? Are you going to get gospel knowledge that you're not yet prepared for? Which, again, goes back to what Elder Ballard is talking about. One of the reasons why we would sometimes hold off some of these discussions with our with our young saints is that we want you to learn, get a testimony of stuff before you're wading through polygamy. Well, we don't have that, that luxury anymore. So we're having to balance it. But some, so often we're not ready to hear yet. And we've got to be prepared. And in the digging, we, we are prepared. Okay? All right. So he said, Here comes secret, not secret, mysterious knowledge, and it's going to be powerful. And I'm going to give you an example of that in just a second. But here's the keys that he's going to give us in, in, in Mosiah 2, 9. Okay. He's going to give you... There are three ways to, to know a mystery. Come to know what it is. He's going to say to them, uh, these people, as his, as the, his address opens, uh, you should hearken unto me and... Open your ears that you may hear. In other words, listen. You ever tried to have a discussion with somebody who believes they know more than you do? And the only time that they stop talking is that, that because they're catching their breath. And it doesn't matter what you're saying, you know they're just reloading. And you could talk about walking on the moon and they would still come back with whatever it is that they're saying. Because they're not listening. You're not having a conversation. Sister John. I've always thought a mystery says plain and precious truths would have been revealed, but we need to come to understand them? Yes, I like that too. And, and, and what we find so often when the Lord says, and it actually is going to happen here because it, it, an angel is going to bring these plain and precious truths. I've taught them before. You just don't have them. So I'm going to bring them back. And they really are plain and precious. And remember, the style of the Jews was, we don't want the plain and precious. We want want mysterious, we want our Ezekiel Isaiah uh, stuff that our sages and rabbis can interpret. We don't want plain and precious, because then we're kind of held accountable for that. So one, he's going to say, open your ears that you may hear. Listen to what I have to say. Listen and, and then he's going to say, number two, the next one is, if anybody's follow along? And your hearts that you may understand. What happens if you go to the temple uh, with your heart fully open? And so you're listening to the whole presentation of the endowment with your heart open. What happens? You not only You will feel the spirit for sure. What else? You learn new things. And you will get application that's personal to you. Exactly right. But we have to lead with our heart to do it. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I, I try. I'm not always successful. I try to leave my watch in the locker. Just for the purpose of saying, so I'm not going. I'll give it another 15 minutes. Okay or you're thinking about other things that need to be done, if you go to the temple and you just open your heart and just say, I'm here to be taught at the Lord's University, you will learn new things, which is really crazy because how many times have you heard the same stuff being said over and over and over? There's nothing, was that in there before? I never heard that before, really? Yeah. And a lot of times you learn things that have nothing to do with what... Oh, that's way true, yes has nothing to do with what was going on there, but the Lord is taking that opportunity to teach you something about you. That, that's exactly right. Um, again, I mentioned our, our patriarch in the Plano stake has told me a number of times, don't be surprised if you're reading through your patriarchal blessing and you find new stuff that was never there before. Because you're in a different part of your life. we were in um, the temple, a temple in heaven, they had quote happening. It was amazing. Isn't that amazing? Yes. Yeah, or if somebody's deaf and they're signing and then they've got the words underneath, you're right. You go, really? Was that there? I didn't. Really? Exactly right. Okay? So you feel with your heart so that you can understand. Not just hear it, but understand. Let me give you an example of that. Is there a difference when we talk about the atonement, and we talk about the atonement a lot, is there a difference between hearing about the atonement being able to describe the mechanics of the atonement and understanding the atonement. Massive gap between the two. Uh, I can't tell you the times that I've sat in in disciplinary councils. Uh, President Jones, you could probably relate to this as well. The times when you've sent disciplinary councils and, and it's the second disciplinary council where somebody's coming back after a year of repentance and work And they come back and almost universally we will hear in those settings, I now understand the atonement in a way that I didn't before. I heard it, could do the mechanics, but when I had to rely on it with my whole heart, suddenly I got it. (coughs) President that, your experience with that? It just it's such a I have to when I need it so much, now I really grasp the power of it. Okay. Feel with your heart that you may understand, and then he's gonna say, and your minds to study. So you get these three parts. Hear it, listen. Open your heart that you may understand it, and then study. Open your minds that you can actually learn. this this part. Okay? And then he says that, if you will do these things, that the mysteries of God may be unfolded to your view. I want you to have these mysteries. Okay? Let me give you an example of of what I'm talking about when we talk about the mysteries. Uh, Let's uh, go to uh, Messiah 2.38 Then I'll come back to this picture in just a second. Here's a mystery that has kind of plagued a lot of Christendom for a long time. And in a sense, you're going to kind of hear it in the Book of Mormon, and it sounds very similar. Therefore, if that man repenteth not, and re- remaineth and dieth an enemy to God, the demands of divine justice to awake his immortal soul to a lively sense of his own guilt, which cause him to shriek from the presence of the Lord, and to fill his breast with guilt and pain and anguish, which is like an unquenchable fire, whose flame ascendeth up forever and ever, and I say unto you, mercy hath no claim on that man. His final, His final doom is to endure a never-ending torment. Have and across Christendom, tell me what hell is? Fire and brimstone, Fire and brimstone forever, never ending and it's a never-ending torment. Doesn't it sound like he's saying the same thing? If you're going to fry, you'll fry forever. Okay, so there, so there's the that is the mystery, and there's a question. And remember, this is the very topic. And I've mentioned this before, that uh, C.S. Lewis's um, mentor, uh, George MacDonald, lost his pulpit. This magnificent preacher in England lost his pulpit in England as one of the most prominent preachers in all of England. He actually ends up in America when he gets tossed out the pulpit. Why? Because he said this, hell has an exit. Absolutely. One day hell will be empty. I cannot believe in a merciful God that would leave his children in hell forever. And the Church of England says that is heretical and took the pulpit away from it. And it was C.S. Lewis as an agnostic who then reads those comments and goes, that is the God I'm looking for. And ultimately C.S. Lewis will add another chapter to that in in the Divine Comedy, and he's going to end up saying, uh, not only that, but hell is locked from the inside you can let yourself out. Okay? Now, to just give you an idea on that then, let's, let me go back to what I posted here. Okay? This little hummer, how many have been to the Sistine Chapel? Yeah, there. that's the wall behind the, the pulpit in the Sistine Chapel. That is Michelangelo's Last Judgment. Michelangelo is drawing the, the final judgment here from Dante's Inferno. And, and Dante's Inferno will, will inspire a lot of artistic works. Uh, uh, Bernini does a really nice version of this, of all the, the levels of hell and the burning and flames that go to the whoremongers and then to the, those who envy and those you know, who steal and you know and just like this di- different levels of frying that people get in hell and in a sense this is what michelangelo is is portraying in the last judgment there in the sistine chapel he's drawing less on the scriptures and more on dante's inferno and so you get a chance to see the last judgment some are doing fine and the ones on the bottom they're like frying eternally well that's wonderful So, did did we, in Latter-day Saint Revelation, do we ever get a key to this mystery? Where do we get this? Where do we get the key that unlocks a mystery that suddenly has us understand even what's being said in the Book of Mormon? Go to D&C 19. Get given to all, or given to uh, Martin Harris on a really, really bad day. <laughs> Verse ten: For behold, the mystery of godliness, how great it is! For I am endless, and the punishment which is given from my hand is endless punishment. And here comes the key: Why? Because. Endless is my name. Eternal punishment is God's punishment. Endless punishment is God's punishment. So when we talk about eternal punishment, we're really saying what? Godly punishment. One day will hell be empty? Absolutely will. There is no eternal burning forever and ever And, in fact, he will even say, uh, verse 7, It is written, Eternal damnation, wherefore it is more expressed in other scriptures that it might work upon the the hearts of the children of men altogether for my name's glory. And I will explain unto you this mystery, for it is meet unto you that you should know, even as mine apostles. Think Martin Harris was ever worried about eternal punishment. (laughs) Yeah, he was. Yeah, sometimes I haven't been so great. Like I got I got tossed off the translation thing because of that 116 page debacle. Yeah, he was he was pretty specific. Martin Harris was what he thought. I've lost my soul. Yeah, I have. I've, you're right. I've lost my soul. I've lost my soul. Well, no, Joseph said that. That's Joseph's words. Yeah, when Martin Harris says I've lost it, I've lost the manuscript, Joseph this is in the, the house there in uh, Palmyra. Joseph says, I've lost my soul, I've lost my soul. And, and uh, his mother says that there was not a darker day all day long in that household. Yeah, it was Joseph. Okay. So anyway, there is, that, 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 that is an example of a mystery. That when you get the key, suddenly it unlocks to you Uh, But in that setting, part of what it is that that Mosiah is trying to tell us, back to Mosiah 2. I miss that. Oh, Mosiah 238. I just missed it. All right, Thank you. And even within the Book of Mormon, Mosiah 27, even Alma will say he has, well, after the angel comes, he's going to have three days of eternal torment. But guess what? His torment ends when? After three days. <laughs> so that eternal torment for him lasted three days. But it was God's torment. If you, if you can see it that way. Uh, and he's going to say, uh, says that after repenting nigh unto death, the Lord in mercy has seen fit to snatch me out of an everlasting burning and I am born of God. In other words, my everlasting wasn't everlasting. It was godly. So now, there's a key to unlocking that mystery. Does that that make sense? Okay. All right. Now, here's here's another key that that we find that unlocks kind of uh, King Benjamin's address. We learn from very mortal beings. Mosiah 2.10, he's going to say, I have not commanded you to come up hither that you should fear me, or that you should think that I am myself of no more than a mortal man. But I am like yourselves, subject to all manner of infirmities in body and mind. Now, uh, interesting. this is interesting to me, where he says, Yet I have been chosen... How did King Benjamin get to be king? I've been chosen by this people. I don't don't know that I understand that. Because it would have thought that Mosiah handed it off to King Benjamin, who hands it off to his son Mosiah. Benjamin's saying, I was chosen by this people. And and there's a mystery there for me. Was he elected or was he... Because he's going to say, I was chosen by this people and consecrated by my father. Anyway, so I've not commanded you to come up to fear me, for you I myself, am myself no more than a mortal man. Now, this is this is kind of important because we look at it and go, uh, Doug, or that's that's a very nice sentiment. But we need to understand the, the context of this. Uh, and let me back up a little bit. Because here here's what we find. In in an apostate setting, there is a there is a pattern that occurs here. When people have known the truth and then they slide into apostasy. Or people have known the truth and they get conquered by other people who come in and they mix their theology with the gospel. Think, think uh, Hellenization. Think the Greeks mixing with Christianity to come up with this, this mix where, where uh, mythology mixes with scripture. Okay. What happens though when people begin to apostate? They have a tendency to take things that are very uh, literal, and they create what I call apostate literalism. I don't want, don't get caught up too much in the terminology. That just simply means that during times of apostasy, religious leaders tend to take gospel symbolism and try to make it literal because they don't understand the symbolism that they... they, they uh, for, for instance, in the Catholic Church we talk about the, uh, the idea of transubstantiation, which really means just what? What's, what's changed what in transubstantiation? Okay, it's so the, the, the host is really the body of Christ and the, the wine is really the blood. Exactly. The, 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 the Eucharist is not just symbolic of God's body, during transubstantiation, it becomes God's body, so it has become literal. Okay, and you'll see that. Let me give you a couple of examples of that. Think about Abraham, uh, and he's going to go down into Egypt, and he brings with it this concept of divine, uh, our divine nature, and what we're capable of—that man can ultimately become godlike. Well, he brings that doctrine in and it mixes with Egyptian philosophy and what happens Pharaohs are gods. Yes, exactly. Pharaohs now become gods and and the whole goal of, of the Egyptian Amdua, which is which is the Egyptian endowment, is how to become God, how to become gods it's the search for divinity and and they're literally trying to, to do that, and so you get this sense of uh, the, the, the god Ra, and here comes the power and it's going to fill these pharaohs and make them gods <laughs> sometimes we do it as a, if we're a prominent rapper, maybe we have become godlike <laughs> that's right, we might worship Beyonce for all you know okay um, and, and, and let, let me give you one that's very good by the way let, let let me give you another one, and and I think it's much more apropos to, again, if the Book of Mormon people are sitting in Mesoamerica and they're surrounded by the Mayan culture, and they're, that means that the the, the the internet and Book of Mormon times in Zarahemla, the outside forces aren't websites; they are local Mayan tribes. The Quichua Maya have their. Vu. it's the it's the belief of how the world was created and lit, and you watch the mix of what the nephites brought to what their traditions were and you see you see the elements of both let me give you an example of that i know you're not going to be able to see it very well i'm going to do this again. okay uh, this is off of a Mayan temple and and what you have at the bottom there is Quesquadil, it's the, it's the feathered serpent, right that, that is this is the, the god that came and brought agriculture and taught them how to love one another and all that uh, and, and Quesquadil very powerful and each one of the uh, Olmecs and the Mayans and everybody have kind of their version of this but in this case it's, it's Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent if you look at his mouth, you, can just, you have to look very carefully can you see it? What do you see? a face this, this is the king, this is a face emerging from Quetzalcoatl emerging from his mouth and, he, and he, he's not quite born yet He's being birthed. But it's man becoming God. But he's, he's emerging from Quetzalcoatl. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. Because there was very much a belief of, of the Mayans, the Quiche Mayans, that their, their uh, kings were godlike. And that for them, it was always that search to become gods. And they were seen as gods. And so part of if you're going to become God, you have to have a broken heart and a contrite spirit. If they're going to literally do a broken heart, how do they do that? They're going to take the heart out. Yeah, it's a broken heart. And and so that that sacrifice on the altar of a broken heart is literally a, a slave or a virgin or somebody like that where they're going to go in and they're going to cut out the heart and break it they're going to run a knife through it and now suddenly this is a broken heart to the king so and a contrite spirit cuz they're basically just died <laughs> okay does that does that make sense okay So when he's going to say to them you should hearken unto me open your ears and you'll hear the mysteries and I have not commanded that you should come hither to fear me I am like yourselves subject to all manner of infirmities I've been chosen by this people consecrated by my fathers and I've spent my days in your service. What's he just done? He's just gone completely opposite of everything else that exists in the culture in which they are living. Everybody else is kings that have become gods, and he's going to reverse it and say, I'm like you. Our kings are not gods, our kings are just mortal men because our God is our king. Our, our God is Jesus Christ. Right. Question on that? Does that, does that make sense? All right. now the, the next thing he's going to do here in setting this up is that he's going to act the King Benjamin's address did two things on one side it's the spiritual underpinning of everything that they do and we're going to see that kind of going forward. But it also was the political king, like here are the rules for kings, and there's the rules for judging, uh, uh, for ruling. And this also will go contrary to everything going on around him, and it will go in some cases a little contrary to the law of Moses. But he's going to set up a political structure that goes forward. And we find out what those five rules were. Right, okay. and you just looked at it, and you and you went, "I didn't know that was the five rules." What is the five rules? It's in Messiah two thirteen. Here are the guidelines for rulers in, the, in for the next hundred and fifty years. <coughs> Neither have I suffered that ye should murder, plunder steal commit adultery or any manner of wickedness there's the pattern and i'm going to enforce these these five things murder what's the difference between stealing and plundering yeah it's kind of destroy we're going to yeah exactly i'm going to one thing i just will go into your house and steal something if i'm going to plunder i will actually destroy stuff okay So there's the five. How important are these five? Let me just give you a couple of examples. Alma 23, the king of the Lamanites tells his people, he's converting, they ought not to murder, nor to plunder, nor to steal, nor to commit adultery, nor to commit any manner of wickedness. Where'd they get that from? King Benjamin. By way of uh, Ammon. Okay, and give you another one. Alma 30. Alma disciplined those who had, remember going to King Messiah, what do I do with these people? He goes, I don't know, you're the high priest, not me. You do it. <coughs> you're the one with the authority. You're the one that organized the church. This isn't a king thing. Okay, but I'm actually, I'm following King Benjamin's guidelines. So who am I going to discipline with? I'm going to discipline those who were murdered, robbed, stole, committed adultery for all manner of wickedness, they were punished. These were, Benjamin, these were Benjamin rules. Let me give you one more. And now we'll go make a big jump into the future. Helaman. All the way to Helaman 6. Past kings. What was the problem with past kings? Guess what the, guess what the kings had been doing. What made them such bad kings? They were breaking the Benjamin rules. They, the kings themselves, rather than preventing it, what the kings themselves were guilty of... Think King Noah, for instance. The, the kings themselves were guilty of murder, plunder, steal, committing whoredoms, and all manner of wickedness. They broke the five Benjamin rules. This was a political structure by which they ruled society. Now, uh, and and the, the, another one that I could have added, if you if you read uh, uh, Samuel the Lamanite, shortly before the coming of Christ, he references he references this. This had huge impact going forward into Nephite civilization and culture for hundreds of years after. This is how they did things. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Alright. Excuse me, one question. You said that there's something contrary to the Ten Commandments? Oh, yes. No, no, uh let's go to not contrary to the Ten Commandments to the law of Moses. Uh he's gonna do it he's gonna say right. Um uh, Verse 13. Neither have I suffered that ye should be confined in dungeons, nor should make slaves of one another. Under the law of Moses, did you have the right to make somebody a slave? Why? Debt. If somebody owed you something and and they were defaulting on their debt, you could actually make them a slave. And you might actually even put them... Remember, the the Savior talks about somebody being put kind of in debtor's debtor's prison. That's a a Law of Moses stipulation. And what he's saying is, I haven't done that. I'm I'm not following that part. So apparently, along with those five, there was some altering of the Law of Moses structure of what he was trying to do. Okay? All right, now. Then there, within the within King Benjamin's address, there are actually two verses that we're pretty fast at quoting because they are kind of the two little, the, the, they're beautifully put. Um, and, and first one is this one. Behold, uh, verse seventeen. I tell you these things that you may learn wisdom. That you may learn that when you're in the service of your fellow beings, you're only in the service of your God. Uh, let, let me share a, a, an experience that I've actually shared in, in class before, and I apologize for those who've kind of heard this before. But sometimes repetition is not a bad thing. Um, when I was uh, when I was a teenager living in Utah, um, maybe it was because when my, some of my earliest memories are. Of my dad uh, and I standing in the pouring rain, standing in line to get into the tabernacle for general conference. And and my dad would take me on a regular basis to general conference, and I came to love general conference, and I had, and I loved going to general conference. And in the old tabernacle, I could tell you what doorway to stand in so you could sit in the right place, the 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 right place on the. Uh, uh, north side of the building, on the uh, east side, if you got in line there, you had a better chance of getting in. And you would be sitting in the balcony overlooking the pulpit and everything right in there. So it was a beautiful view down there. Okay, And, and, I, and I loved going. Uh, and probably one of the uh, experiences that I had that touched my heart the most, maybe as a, as a growing boy... Was an experience of going there uh, after uh, Harold B. Lee. This is in 1973. Harold B. Lee has now been called to be the prophet. Uh, Joseph F. Smith dies. And President Lee, um, who had married, who had sealed my parents uh, in the Salt Lake Temple, was kind of a particular note to us. But I remember very clearly uh, being in the tabernacle and watching him, and he stood up to speak. And then, and then I remember watching clearly as he took his, he had some notes and he set them aside. And he just kind of leaned forward and started to talk. And he said, he said, brothers and sisters, uh, he said, uh, the other night, and I'll paraphrase a little bit. The other night I had an unusual experience. And he says, I think it was not a dream, I think it must have been a vision. He said, I seem to be in some kind of meeting. And he said, the spirit was, was unusual. And he said, people were jumping up and testifying. And he said, while I was, while I was watching this, he says, I seem to hear the words of President David O. McKay saying, if you want to learn to love God, you must learn to come, come to love and serve the people. That is how you show your love to God. And then, uh, near the end of that address, he would then say, I believe that in the meeting today, there has been an effectual... Uh, he used the word effectual... Uh, he said that there's been, the, the veil has been so thin. He says, if there had been a more effectual struggle on our side, there might have been no veil. And I remember as a as a youth sitting there and just being fired by that. And the other thing that I, I very clearly remember is that he got done speaking. We had a closing song, closing prayer. After the closing prayer, there's not a sound in the entire tabernacle. It's just dead silence except for the organ that starts to play. And I remember that President Lee stood up to leave and that President Kimball... As the, as the president of the Quorum of the Twelve was sitting just on the other side of the pulpit from him. And he came over, and they had this long embrace. And again, in the tabernacle, we were frozen, and nothing was, nobody dared move, nobody was leaving. We just watched these two wonderful brethren at the, the end of this. And then he left. And and then I do remember it wasn't that, it wasn't just a few months later, the day after Christmas, that Presently passes away. And I said, as a youth I remember I just wept. Because I had connected somehow. With this wonderful man. And he had fired my soul with the sense that he was a prophet. And that sense of service. And, and what he was experiencing. I think is what. Benjamin is saying here. That I tell you these things. That you'll learn wisdom. How do you learn Wisdom. Well, you learn wisdom when you're in the service of your fellow beings. That's when you come to know God at his best. Um, Again, President, wouldn't it be easier from the temple standpoint, we're we're trying to empty the ocean with a teacup, right? There's no way that we can ever get enough names done to cover everybody that's ever lived. So in a sense, wouldn't it be easier if we just wait for the millennium and then they can tell us exactly when things are... When they were born, so we can actually get the work done. Why do, why, do we have to, why do we have to go back and kind of try and empty the ocean with a teacup? Because of the experience that happens there. Yeah, and the experience for us. There is, a, there is a, a, a small percentage of the earth's population that will be served as a result of what we're doing. And we're, going to save, we're working to save our kindred dead through the atonement. But the ones that we are most likely saving are ourselves through our own service that we're able to gain the wisdom that we need in everything else that we do. That's why temples are such a blessing to us. It's for our own service. to And again, wouldn't it be easier if, if it's simply a matter that simply words need to be done in the temple, the endowment, couldn't it be like five minutes? Be done very, very quickly. You just kind of put it on fast forward. And we could, from a more efficient standpoint, we could probably find a way to do the to do the endowment in about 5 minutes and i might be able to get 200 done in a matter of just a few hours wouldn't that be more efficient we've had that happen
1: once
0: or twice <laughs> <laughs> <Oops. laughs> Well, we could always go back to the Naboo Endowment. That was ten hours. Ago. Yeah, it was a much longer thing, and they would hold a square dance afterwards and have dinner. Okay. Um, but the idea is, those hours that we spend serving in the temple change us and transform us. It is about the experience. It's not about efficiency. That's how we come to to uh, serve God, and it is by serving our fellow beings that been your experience in the Mm -hmm. callings that you've served in alright well uh, let's see oh just a side note here he's then going to I don't want to take very long oh here it is verse 20 he's going to start talking about being preserved uh, this is actually the uh, these ancient Israelite festivals. Oft times began with Lord God, King of the universe, who has kept us and preserved us to reach this season. This is a special Feast of Tabernacles. They reach, we've reached the fall. We've had a good harvest. We're going to eat for the winter. And you have preserved us. So fascinating that King Benjamin is going to again say, uh, We're going to pray to this God who has created you and has kept you and preserved you and is preserving you from day to day by lending you breath. That's a direct quote from the Feast of Tabernacles from Sukkot. All right. Let's see. Oh, okay. So let me finish with this. One of the ways that we develop faith is simply by watching the fact that our own spiritual experience is there, but the other one is watching prophets that are able to have revelatory experiences, tell us what's going to happen, and then then we see it happen. And you see the connection. That's how we we build faith. Okay? Now, I want you to see one here. Uh, And this is... This is the prophets within the Book of Mormon relying on one another, the same way that prophets today rely on prophets of the past. Um, Now, if we go to, turn for a second if you would, to 2 Nephi 10. We're going to go back to Jacob. Jacob's going to have an interesting experience. Jacob 10, 1. Or 2 Nephi 10, 1. And if you go to 2 Nephi 9, he's just taught one of the most powerful discussions we have of the atonement in all the scriptures is 2 Nephi 9. So here comes 10. Now I, Jacob, speak unto you again, my beloved brethren, concerning this righteous branch of which I have spoken. That righteous branch is his progenitor's. Right. That's that's pretty close. I did that once in gospel doctrine. And I just kept slapping this thing and wouldn't What will all watch while you walk out? humiliated. Really <laughs> I did that sacrament meeting once too. I did. Oh man. Okay. <laughs> For behold, he says, the promises which we have obtained that God will talk to my children's children, which we have obtained are the promises unto us according to the flesh. Wherefore it has been made known unto me that many of our children shall perish in the flesh because of unbelief. Nevertheless, God will be merciful unto many. And our children shall be restored that they may come to that which will give them the true knowledge of their Redeemer. He's saying, as did Paul in the New Testament, there's going to be an apostasy. Many of our children are going to fall away. And the main thing that happens when they fall away is that they lose the true knowledge of their Redeemer. They'll have some idea... But in an apostasy, remember, the true knowledge, the true understanding, the mysteries are lost. And he says that's going to happen. But I've received a promise in my prayer. Remember, this is like 540 BC. I've received a promise from God that one day my children's children's children would be restored to, a, to a, the true knowledge of their Redeemer. Wherefore, and then listen where he gets this. Wherefore, as I said unto you, it must be needs be expedient that Christ. Oh, for in the last night the angels spake unto me that this should be his name. The name of Christ is revealed to Jacob the night before he has a vision, and now in his in, in, as part of his temple discourse. He's going to stand up and say one of the things I'm going to reveal to you right now I will tell you the name of the Messiah hundreds of years down the road. 500 years down the road his name will be Christ. And by the way and his mother will be Mary. Now why would it be so important that they know that Christ was his name and Mary was his mother? Well, these people were in America. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But why is Mary so important? Yeah, but it's also specific knowledge. The one of the ways that you'll know that it's fulfilled, and Joseph in the Book of Mormon does the same thing. There's, there's going to be another Joseph, and his name will be Joseph, and his father's name will be Joseph. Oh, oh, so we get these little, I'll give you these little signs that believers look at it and go, oh, that strengthens my testimony. I already had one, but it signs help. Okay, so his name will be Christ, and he's going to come on the Jews for the more picket, wicked part of the world. And they'll crucify him for thus is Jehovah, our God, and there's none other nation on earth that would crucify their God. So it amazes me this great God and the atonement I've been talking about. His name will be Christ. His mother will be Mary, and they and he will do many mighty miracles. I think that's the next line, isn't it? Yep. That there should be mighty miracles wrought among the nations that would repent and know that he be their God. Okay? So here's Jacob, 540. He has this, he has this wonderful experience, and he records it in the small place. Now, in the middle of King Benjamin's address, we just spent Mosiah chapter 2. That was kind of the preface. I, here's the idea, you're going to learn mysteries. Then he says, and I've tried to serve you, and this is what we do, this is what service is, this is how it works, and this is how you're going to gain wisdom. But there are mysteries coming. Where do the mysteries come in King Benjamin's address? Chapter 3. Chapter 3 is the revelatory 4 and 5 of the covenants, Chapter 2 is the, the, the preface. Chapter 3 is the mysteries. It is the direct knowledge. Now, is King Benjamin going to assume he knew the mysteries all by himself? No. Look what happens in chapter 3. So now we're going to go all the way down to King Benjamin. Mosiah 3, 2. And the things which I shall tell you are made known unto me. How? Wow. I'm sure this is like a different angel, right? Probably not. how How did Joseph Smith know what he knew? By an angel. He never assumed that he was going to take on authority by himself. How did he get authority? by an angel how did he get certain knowledge by an angel then they build the temple and now he's going to take on the keys of the gathering of Israel and and the and the gospel of Abraham and and the power of Elijah how's he going to get all of that power by an angel <laughs> Because the Lord's pattern is when there is the gospel on the earth and there has been an apostasy and part of what's lost is the knowledge and part of what's lost is the authority. How does the Lord restore all of that? There's the pattern. He does it by an angel. And he gives certain people... Now let me me take it back a step. In the Kirtland Temple... Couldn't the Savior himself, if, the, if in the curtain Temple, here comes these, uh, they're going to see the Savior, and then they're going to see uh, uh, Elijah and Moses and, and Abraham, and they're going to see these people, right? Couldn't the Savior have given Joseph and Oliver the keys himself? Definitely. How come he waited around for Moses to do it? Because he held the keys, and the Lord has always honored those that have the keys. And to, that's their calling. That's their responsibility. And even though the Lord could do it, He's not going to take. He's He's in, He's done an investor of authority to that uh, person, who then carries the ball and runs with it. On on uh, yesterday, we met for the first time with the in the Plano Stake. With the Plano High Council, and here comes our brand new state presidency, and the and they just pick up the ball and run with it, and now they're the ones that have the keys, and it's just a flowing. But the but uh, President Beach at the Plano State did not get it just because okay we elected him, or the President Wilding said take it and run. It, that power and authority had to come. Now the prophet could have come himself and, and did it, but. No, that was handed to President Nelson, and President Nelson then gives it to Craig Zwick, who now comes and and provides that that you get that divine investiture of whoever has the keys. Does that make sense? Okay, so there is knowledge here that when Jacob is going to be told, let me tell you his name. Let me give you a a key, a mystery. Yep, his name will be Jesus, and his mother will be Mary. Now. All these years later, 300, 400 years later, here comes King Benjamin. How's that all going to be restored? By an angel. <laughs> I, I, I'm telling you it's the same angel. <laughs> that's his calling, that's his responsibility. And he's probably the same angel that, that does a major whoop-up on Alma the Younger. <laughs> So that when, so in Alma twenty nine, when Alma says, "Oh, that I were an angel," well, who does Alma want to be? His angel. Job. <laughs> okay. And the things which I shall tell you are made known unto me by an angel from God, and he said unto me, "Awake," and I awoke, and he stood before me. Sounds a little bit like Joseph Smith, right? Oh, wait a minute, angel. Yeah, same thing. Okay. And he said unto me, Awake, and hear the words which I shall tell you, for I am come to declare you the glad tidings of great joy. Oh, wait a minute. We've heard this one. Where have we heard this one? Other angels. Which angels? The one. At Bethlehem. Yeah. Yes. Testified of Jesus. Oh, angels. Another key we know about angels. Guess what? They bring great joy. 2 Nephi 31 says, They speak the words of the Holy Ghost, therefore they speak the words of Christ. So is that Angel Gabriel? Like Don't know. Could be because he's don't know. The he's not thing. really saying, is he? But <laughs> but Gabriel was pretty good with that. Said that Gabriel that the to Mary and Joseph and the and the, mm-hmm. that's still about four hundred years away. I mm-hmm. no, at this point it's about two hundred years away. But could be. Maybe that's maybe that's Gabriel's key. He gets to he gets to tell the great tidings of the coming Savior that would that, that, that have some sense. Okay. For the Lord hath heard thy prayers and hath judged thy righteousness for thou hast sent and hath sent me to declare unto thee that, they, that thou mayest rejoice and that thou mayest declare unto thy people, and that they may also be filled with joy. What words of joy could this angel tell to King Benjamin? That would uh, bring them great joy. For behold, the time cometh, and is not distant, that the power with that with power the Lord omnipotent, who reigneth and who was returning to eternity, shall come down among heaven and among the children of men, and shall dwell among a tabernacle of clay, and shall go forth working among men, working mighty miracles. Oh, wait a minute! It's the same phrase. Uh, Such as healing the sick, raising the dead, causing the lame to walk, and the blind. uh, To see their sight and the deaf to hear. Okay? Why would he be saying the same things? Go back to Jacob. What is it that Jacob really wanted? That our children may be restored. That they may come to that which will give them the true knowledge of their Redeemer. How exactly was that particular prophecy fulfilled? King Benjamin and his people. And it's so exact, the, the angel repeats the exact same words and King Benjamin will, will, will tell him that. And in fact, um, if you look at all of what's going to take, take place in Messiah 3... And we get all the way down to, oh, by the way, verse eight. And his name shall be what? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of Heaven and Earth, the Creator. And by the way, his mother shall be called Mary. Oh, yes, it's exact. It's the same. It's the same prophecy, and it's word for word. He's going to do all this. Uh, ten, he'll rise at the their day. He'll judge the world. His blood atones. Uh, Then he's going to get all the way down to verse 23. And he's going to say, And now I have spoken the words which the Lord God hath commanded me. So that means verse 1 through 22 was an exact revelation given to King Benjamin that he was to give to his people probably word for word. And it matches Jacob's address. By the way, it will also match one other, I got five minutes, I'll do it better. it matches one other address, and these words, almost word for word, and it's in the Book of Mormon. Anybody know where that might be? Any guesses? Samuel. Who? Samuel. Samuel is going to repeat a lot of the same stuff, but it's not as exact as this is. In fact, this is so exact that some some have speculated that they might know who the angel is. It's somebody who died 20 years earlier and it would be Abinadi. Yeah. Because I know this doesn't look very good. It's still a work in progress here. But uh, I took... I took Mosiah 3.5, when the angel is telling King Benjamin, and I'm lining it up with Mosiah 15. This is Abinadi talking to uh, King Noah. And then I start looking at all the words that are the same. Shall come down from heaven among the children of men, that God himself shall come among the children of men, uh, work of mighty miracles, uh, suffer temptation, they'll crucify him. And you just get all of these Things. And so, one of the possibilities of who this angel might be has been suggested because Abinadi will die 20 years before King Benjamin. Maybe it was Abinadi. Because the same angel is saying the things to Jacob, I'm, now I'm not quite, I don't, I don't think so. But, but, there is a, but it gives you some idea that Abinadi himself might also have had a, a visit from an angel because these words are so repeated, they are so similar. So let me, so don't be too weirded out then when one when, uh, when of the attacks that the, happens with the Book of Mormon, when, when they say, well, wait a minute, we went to 3rd Nephi, you know, 11, 12, and 13, and here's Jesus talking to the Nephites, and, and what is it that he's teaching them? It was the Sermon on the Mount he stole from, you know, Matthew 3, 4, and 5. Well, it's just the same words. No, that's what the Lord does. There are intact sermons and He wants them taught taught specifically this way. Because there is great knowledge in the way that those lessons are structured. And and so we get an angel that comes to Jacob and one that comes to Mosiah and probably one that comes to Abinadi and probably one that comes to to, uh, Alma and probably one that comes to Samuel. And they're being taught the exact same thing line by line. Because it, it's powerful and so we're not supposed to kind of take away from this. Okay, All right. Catch your breath. How are we doing? Is that a lot? Okay. That's one of the reasons why we, we record these a little bit so that if you want to go to the uh, kevinhinkley.com you can get them there. I will probably also this afternoon. I've been uploading them to YouTube so you can actually just go pull up Kevin Hinckley on YouTube and find find this lesson. There's no there's no visual, so it's just kind of an audio, and you're staring at a blank screen. But, yeah. Um, I 18 and is Verses 18 and 19 mm-hmm. of Mosiah three. Mm-hmm. Uh, that wouldn't shock me at all. Uh, yeah, yeah. And we didn't get to the... Oh, boy. <laughs> We're going to start... Hold on to that idea. We'll start with this next week. Because I want... Because... And so here's your homework for the week. We're doing four, in, Messiah 4 and 5 next week. I want to start with 3 Nephi 3.19 because this is our... I told you there are two verses that we like to quote in, 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 in from King Benjamin's address. One is about service; the other is about the natural man, right? And we talk about we need to become like a child. Mm-hmm. I need you to study the verses ahead, seventeen and eighteen, and twenty and twenty-one on on both sides. Put put nineteen in context. And then you're going to understand better when he says, and becometh like a little child. What little children is he talking about? There, there's your homework. What little children is uh, King Benjamin referring to? And you'll get a sense of it by looking at the two verses ahead of it and the two verses after it. Okay? We'll start and we'll start there. So so yeah, specifically look at uh, seventeen and eighteen and twenty and twenty-one. Because it's all talking about little children. But it's a specific group of little children. Okay. Alright. Uh, Alright. That's funny. Again. Hearing my testimony. This is, this is such great wonderful stuff. And it's full of mysteries. And it's mysteries that the Lord intends for us to have. And wants us to be able to know. And he will teach us. If we will just listen with our ears. And listen with our hearts. And then study. And it will be opened unto you. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name.